Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Carpe Jugulum, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Nigel Planer. Through the shredded black clouds, a fire moved like a dying star, falling back to Earth. The Earth, that is, of the disc world. But unlike any star had ever done before, it sometimes managed to steer its fall, sometimes rising, sometimes twisting, but inevitably heading down. Snow glowed briefly on the mountain slopes when it crackled overhead. Under it, the land itself started to fall away. The fire was reflected off walls of blue ice as the light dropped into the beginnings of a canyon and thundered now through its twists and turns. The light snapped off. Something still glided down the moonlit ribbon between the rocks. It shot out of the canyon at the top of a cliff, where meltwater from a glacier plunged down into a distant pool. Against all reason, there was a valley here, or a network of valleys, clinging to the edge of the mountains before the long fall to the plains. A small lake gleamed in the warmer air. There were forests, there were tiny fields like a patchwork quilt thrown across the rocks. The wind had died. The air was warmer. The shadow began to circle. Far below, unheeded and unheeding, something else was entering this little handful of valleys. It was hard to see exactly what it was, Furs rippled, heather rustled, as if a very large army made of very small creatures was moving with one purpose. The shadow reached a flat rock that offered a magnificent view of the fields and wood below, and there the army came out from among the roots. It was made up of very small blue men, some wearing pointy blue caps, but most of them with their red hair uncovered. They carried swords. None of them was more than six inches high. They lined up, and looked down into the new place, and then, weapons-waving, raised a battle cry. It would have been more impressive if they'd agreed on one before, but as it was, it sounded as though every single small warrior had a battle cry of his very own, and would fight anyone who tried to take it away from him. Knack MacFiegel! Ah, stick it, your trackens! Gee you such a kitten! Big chops! There can only be wind thousand! Knack MacFiegel, wahey! Well, hey, yourself, you boggin. The little cup of valleys, glowing in the last shreds of evening sunlight, was the kingdom of Lancre. From its highest points, people said you could see all the way to the rim of the world. It was also said, although not by the people who lived in Lancre, that below the rim, where the seas thundered continuously over the edge, their home went through space on the back of four huge elephants that in turn stood on the shell of a turtle that was as big as the world. The people of Lancre had heard of this. They thought it sounded about right. The world was obviously flat, although in Lancre itself the only truly flat places were tables and the top of some people's heads. And certainly turtles could shift a fair load. Elephants, by all accounts, were pretty strong too. They didn't see many major gaps in the thesis, so Lancrastrians left it at that. It wasn't that they didn't take an interest in the world around them. On the contrary, they had a deep personal and passionate involvement in it. But instead of asking, why are we here, they asked, is it going to rain before the harvest? 
A philosopher might have deplored this lack of mental ambition, but only if he was really certain about where his next meal was coming from. In fact, Lancre's position and climate bred a hard-headed and straightforward people who often excelled in the world down below. It had supplied the plains with many of their greatest wizards and witches, and once again the philosopher might have marvelled that such a four-square people could give the world so many successful magical practitioners, being quite unaware that only those with their feet on rock can build castles in the air. And so the sons and daughters of Lancre went off into the world, carved out careers, climbed the various ladders of achievement, and always remembered to send money home. Apart from noting the return addresses on the envelope, those who stayed didn't think much about the world outside. The world outside thought about them, though. The big flat-topped rock was deserted now, but on the moor below the heather trembled in a V-shape, heading towards the lowlands. Gin's a haddy! Nack MacFiegel! There are many kinds of vampires. Indeed, it is said that there are as many kinds of vampires as there are types of disease which presumably means that some are virulent and deadly, and others just make you walk in a funny way and avoid fruit. And they're not just human, if vampires are human. All along the ramtops may be found the belief that any apparently innocent tool, be it hammer or saw, will seek blood if left unused for more than three years. In Gat, they believe in vampire watermelons, although folklore is silent about what they believe about vampire watermelons. Possibly they suck back. Two things have traditionally puzzled vampire researchers. One is, why do vampires have so much power? Vampires are so easy to kill, they point out. There are dozens of ways to dispatch them, quite apart from the stake through the heart, which also works on normal people, so if you have any stakes left over, you don't have to waste them. Classically, they spend the day in some coffin somewhere, with no guard other than an elderly hunchback who doesn't look all that spry, and should succumb to a quite small mob. Yet just one can keep a whole community in a state of sullen obedience. The other puzzle is, why are vampires always so stupid? As if wearing evening dress all day wasn't an undead giveaway, why do they choose to live in old castles which offer so much in the way of ways to defeat a vampire, like easily torn curtains and wall decorations that can readily be twisted into a religious symbol? Do they really think that spelling their name backwards fools anyone? A coach rattled across the moorlands many miles away from Lancre. From the way it bounced over the ruts, it was travelling light, but darkness came with it. The horses were black, and so was the coach, except for the coat of arms on the doors. Each horse had a black plume between its ears. There was a black plume at each corner of the coach as well. Perhaps these caused the coach's strange effect of travelling shadow. It seemed to be dragging the night behind it. On the top of the moor where a few trees grew out of the rubble of a ruined building, it creaked to a halt. The horses stood still, occasionally stamping a hoof or tossing their heads. The coachman sat hunched over the reins, waiting. Four figures flew just above the clouds in the silvery moonlight. By the sound of their conversation, someone was annoyed, although the sharp, unpleasant tone to the voice suggested that a better word might be vexed. You let it get away. This voice had a whine to it, the voice of a chronic complainer. It was wounded, Lackey. This voice sounded conciliatory, parental, but with just a hint of repressed desire to give the first voice a thick ear. I really hate those things. They're so soppy. Yes, dear, a symbol of a credulous past. 
If I could burn like that, I wouldn't skulk around just looking pretty. Why do they do it? It must have been of use to them at one time, I suppose. Then they're, what did you call them? An evolutionary cul-de-sac lackey, a maroon survivor on the seas of progress. Then I'm doing them a favour by killing them. Yes, that is a point. Now, sh after all, chickens don't burn, said the voice called lackey. Not easily, anyway. We heard your experiment. Killing them first might have been a good idea. This was a third voice, young, male, and also somewhat weary with the female. It had older brother harmonics on every syllable. What's the point in that? Well, dear, it would have been quieter. Listen to your father, dear. And this, the fourth voice, could only be a mother's voice. It had loved the other voices, whatever they did. You're so unfair. We did let you drop rocks on the pixies, dear. Life can't all be fun. The coachman stirred as the voices descended through the clouds, and then four figures were standing a little way off. He clambered down and with difficulty opened the coach door as they approached. Most of the wretched things got away, though, said Mother. Never mind, my dear, said Father. I really hate them. Are they a dead end, too, said Daughter. Not quite dead enough as yet, despite your valiant efforts. Igor, on to Lancre. The coachman turned. Yes, Master. Oh, for the last time, man, is that any way to talk? It's the only way I know, Master, said Igor. And I told you to take the plumes off the coach, you idiot. The coachman shifted uneasily. Gotta have black plumes, Master. It's traditional. Remove them at once, Mother commanded. What will people think? Yes, Mistress. The one addressed as Igor slammed the door and lurched back around to the horse. He removed the plumes reverentially and placed them under his seat. Inside the coach, the vexed one said, Is Igor an evolutionary dead end too, father? We can but hope, dear. Thod, said Igor to himself as he picked up the reins. The wording began, You are cordially invited, and was in that posh, runny writing that was hard to read but ever so official. Nanny Og grinned and tucked the card back on the mantelpiece. She liked the idea of cordially, it had a rich, a thick, and above all, an alcoholic sound. She was ironing her best petticoat. That is to say, she was sitting in her chair by the fire, while one of her daughters-in-law, whose name she couldn't remember just at this moment, was doing the actual work. Nanny was helping by pointing out the bits she'd missed. It was a damn good invite, she thought, especially the gold edging, which was as thick as syrup. Probably not real gold, but impressively glittery all the same. "'There's a bit there that could do with going over again, girl,' she said, topping up her beer. "'Yes, Nanny.' Another daughter-in-law, whose name she'd certainly be able to recall after a few seconds' thought, was buffing up Nanny's red boots. A third was very carefully dabbing the lint off Nanny's best pointy hat on its stand. Nanny got up again and wandered over to the open back door. There was little light left in the sky now, and a few rags of cloud were scudding over the early stars. She sniffed the air. Winter hung on late up here in the mountains, but there was definitely a taste of spring on the wind. A good time, she thought. Best time, really. Oh, she knew that the year started on Hogswatch night, when the cold tide turned, but the new year started now, with green shoots boring upwards through the last of the snow. Change was in the air, she could feel it in her bones. 
Of course, her friend Granny Weatherwax always said you couldn't trust Bones, but Granny Weatherwax said a lot of things like that all the time. Nanny Og closed the door. In the trees at the end of her garden, leafless and scratchy against the sky, something rustled its wings and chattered as a veil of dark crossed the world. In her own cottage a few miles away, the witch Agnes Knit was in two minds about her new pointy hat. Agnes was generally in two minds about anything. As she tucked in her hair and observed herself critically in the mirror, she sang a song. She sang in harmony. Not, of course, with her reflection in the glass, because that kind of heroine will sooner or later end up singing a duet with Mr Bluebird and other forest creatures, and then there's nothing for it but a flamethrower. She simply sang in harmony with herself. Unless she concentrated, it was happening more and more these days. Perdita had a rather reedy voice, but she insisted on joining in. Those who are inclined to casual cruelty say that inside a fat girl is a thin girl and a lot of chocolate. Agnes's thin girl was Perdita. She wasn't sure how she'd acquired the invisible passenger. Her mother had told her that when she was small, she'd been in the habit of blaming accidents and mysteries, such as the disappearance of a bowl of cream or the breaking of a prize jug, on the other little girl. Only now did she realise that indulging this sort of thing wasn't a good idea, when despite yourself you've got a bit of natural witchcraft in your blood. The imaginary friend had simply grown up and had never gone away, and had turned out to be a pain. Agnes disliked Perdita, who was vain, selfish and vicious, and Perdita hated going around inside Agnes, whom she regarded as a fat, pathetic, weak-willed blob that people would walk all over were she not so steep. Agnes told herself she'd simply invented the name Perdita as some convenient label for all those thoughts and desires she knew she shouldn't have, as a name for that troublesome little commentator that lives on everyone's shoulder and sneers. But sometimes she thought Perdita had created Agnes for something to pummel. Agnes tended to obey rules. Perdita didn't. Perdita thought that not obeying rules was somehow cool. Agnes thought that rules like don't fall into this huge pit of spikes were there for a purpose. Perdita thought, to take an example at random, that things like table manners were a stupid and repressive idea. Agnes, on the other hand, was against being hit by flying bits of other people's cabbage. Perdita thought a witch's hat was a powerful symbol of authority. Agnes thought that a dumpy girl should not wear a tall hat, especially with black. It made her look as though someone had dropped a licorice-flavoured ice cream cone. The trouble was that although Agnes was right, so was Perdita. The pointy hat carried a lot of weight in the ram tops. People talked to the hat, not to the person wearing it. When people were in serious trouble, they went to a witch. Sometimes, of course, to say, please stop doing it. You had to wear black, too. Perdita liked black. Perdita thought black was cool. Agnes thought that black wasn't a good colour for the circumferentially challenged. Oh, and that cool was a dumb word used only by people whose brains wouldn't fill a spoon. Magrat Garlic hadn't worn black and had probably never in her life said cool, except when commenting on the temperature. Agnes stopped examining her pointiness in the mirror and looked around the cottage that had been Magrat's and was now hers and sighed. Her gaze took in the expensive gold-edged card on the mantelpiece. Well... Magrat had certainly retired now, and had gone off to be queen, and if there was ever any doubt about that, then there could be no doubt today. Agnes was puzzled at the way Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax still talked about her, though. They were proud, more or less, that she'd married the king, and agreed that it was the right kind of life for her, 
but while they never actually articulated the thought, it hung in the air over their heads in flashing mental colours, Magrat has settled for second prize. Agnes had almost burst out laughing when she first realised this, but you wouldn't be able to argue with them. They wouldn't even see that there could be an argument. Granny Weatherwax lived in a cottage with a thatch so old there was quite a sprightly young tree growing in it, and got up and went to bed alone and washed in the rain barrel. And Nanny Og was the most local person Agnes had ever met. She'd gone off to foreign parts, yes, but she always carried Lancre with her like a sort of invisible hat. But they took it for granted that they were top of every tree, and the rest of the world was there for them to tinker with. Perdita thought that being a queen was just about the best thing you could be. Agnes thought the best thing you could be was far away from Lancre, and a good second best would be to be alone in your own head. She adjusted the hat as best she could and left the cottage. Witches never locked their doors, they never needed to. As she stepped out in the moonlight, two magpies landed on the thatch. The current activities of the witch Granny Weatherwax would have puzzled a hidden observer. She peered at the flagstones just inside her back door and lifted the old rag rug in front of it with her toe. Then she walked to the front door, which was never used, and did the same thing there. She also examined the cracks around the edges of the doors. She went outside. There had been a sharp frost during the night, a spiteful little trick by the dying winter, and the drifts of leaves that hung on in the shadows were still crisp. In the harsh air she poked around in the flower-pots and bushes by the front door, then she went back inside. She had a clock. Lancrastians liked clocks, although they didn't bother much about actual time in any length much shorter than an hour. If you needed to boil an egg, you sang fifteen verses of Where Has All the Custard Gone Under Your Breath? but the tick was a comfort on long evenings. Finally, she sat down in her rocking chair and glared at the doorway. Owls were hooting in the forest when someone came running up the path and hammered on her door. Anyone who hadn't heard about Granny's iron self-control, which you could bend a horseshoe round, might have just thought they heard her give a tiny sigh of relief. "'Well, it's about time,' she began." The excitement up at the castle was just a distant hum down in the mews. The hawks and falcons sat hunched on their perches, lost in some inner world of stoop and updraft. There was the occasional clink of a chain or flutter of a wing. Hodges Arg, the falconer, was getting ready in the tiny room next door when he felt the change in the air. He stepped out into a silent muse. The birds were all awake, alert, expectant. Even King Henry, the eagle whom Hodges Arg would only go near at the moment when he was wearing full plate armour, was peering around. You got something like this when there was a rat in the place, but Hodges Arg couldn't see one. Perhaps it had gone. For tonight's event, he'd selected William the Buzzard, who could be depended upon. All Hodges Arg's birds could be depended upon, but more often than not, they could be depended upon to viciously attack him on sight. William, however, thought that she was a chicken and she was usually safe in company. But even William was paying a lot of attention to the world, which didn't often happen, unless she'd seen some corn. Odd, thought Hodges Arg, and that was all. The birds went on staring up, as though the roof simply was not there. Granny Weatherwax lowered her gaze to a red, round and worried face. Yeah, you're not... She pulled herself together. You're the Watley boy from over in Slice, aren't you? <laughs> the boy leaned against the door jamb and fought for breath. You got, you got, 
Just take deep breaths. You want a drink of water? You could... You could... Yes, yes, all right, just breathe. The boy gulped air a few times. <gasps> you got to come to Mrs Ivy and her baby, missus. The words came out in one quick stream. Granny grabbed her hat from its peg by the door and pulled her broomstick out of its lodging in the thatch. I thought old Mrs Paternoster was seeing to her, she said, ramming her hatpins into place with the urgency of a warrior preparing for sudden battle. She says, it's all gone wrong, miss. Granny was already running down her garden path. There was a small drop on the other side of the clearing, with a twenty-foot fall to a bend in the track. The broom hadn't fired by the time she reached it, but she ran on, swinging a leg over the bristles as it plunged. The magic caught, halfway down, and her boots dragged across the dead bracken as the broom soared up into the night. The road wound over the mountains like a dropped ribbon. Up here there was always the sound of the wind. The highwayman's horse was a big black stallion. It was also quite possibly the only horse with a ladder strapped behind the saddle. This was because the highwayman's name was Cassanunda, and he was a dwarf. Most people thought of dwarfs as reserved, cautious, law-abiding, and very reticent on matters of the heart and other vaguely connected organs. And this was indeed true of almost all dwarfs. But genetics rolled strange dice on the green bays of life, and somehow the dwarfs had produced Casanunda, who preferred fun to money and devoted to women all the passion that other dwarfs reserved for gold. He also regarded laws as useful things, and he obeyed them when it was convenient. Casanunda despised highwaymenning, but it got you out in the fresh air of the countryside, which was very good for you, especially when the nearby towns were lousy with husbands carrying a grudge and a big stick. The trouble was that no one on the road took him seriously. He could stop the coaches all right, but people tended to say, What? I say, it's a low wayman. What up? <laughs> a bit short, are you? <laughs> and he would be forced to shoot them in the knee. He blew on his hands to warm them and looked up at the sound of an approaching coach. He was about to ride out of his meagre hiding place in the thicket when he saw the other highwayman trot out from the wood opposite. The coach came to a halt. Cassanunda couldn't hear what transpired, but the highwayman rode around to one of the doors and leaned down to speak to the occupants, and a hand reached out and plucked him off his horse and into the coach. It rocked on its springs for a while, and then the door burst open and the highwayman tumbled out and lay still on the road. The coach moved on. Casanunda waited a little while, and then rode down to the body. His horse stood patiently while he untied the ladder and dismounted. He could tell the highwayman was stone dead. Living people are expected to have some blood in them. The coach stopped at the top of a rise a few miles further on, before the road began the long winding fall towards Lancre and the plains. The four passengers got out and walked to the start of the drop. The clouds were rolling in behind them, but here the air was frosty clear, and the view stretched all the way to the rim under the moonlight. Down below, scooped out of the mountains, was the little kingdom. "'Gateway to the world,' said the Count de Magpier. "'And entirely undefended,' said his son. "'On the contrary, possessed of some extremely effective defences,' said the Count. He smiled in the night. "'At least—' "'Until now.' "'Witches should be on our side,' said the Countess. "'She will be soon, at any rate,' said the Count. "'A most interesting woman, an interesting family. 
Uncle used to talk about her grandmother. The Weatherwax women have always had one foot in shadow. It's in the blood, and most of their power comes from denying it. However, his teeth shone as he grinned in the dark, she will soon find out on which side her bread is buttered. Or her gingerbread is gilded, said the Countess. Ah, yes, how nicely put. That's the penalty for being a weatherwax woman, of course. When they get older, they start to hear the clang of the big oven door. I've heard she's pretty tough, though, said the Count's son. A very sharp mind. Let's kill her, said the Count's daughter. Really, lackey dear, you can't kill everything. I don't see why not. No, I rather like the idea of her being useful. And she sees everything in black and white. That's always a trap for the powerful. Oh, yes, a mind like that is so easily led with a little help. There was a whir of wings under the moonlight, and something bicoloured landed on the Count's shoulder. And this, said the Count, stroking the magpie and then letting it go. He pulled a square of white card from an inner pocket of his jacket. Its edge gleamed briefly. Can you believe it? Has this sort of thing ever happened before? A new world order indeed. Do you have a handkerchief, sir? said the Countess. Give it to me, please. You have a few specks. She dabbed at his chin and pushed the blood-stained handkerchief back into his pocket. There, she said. There are other witches, said the son, like someone turning over a mouthful that was proving rather tough to chew. Oh, yes, I hope we will meet them. They could be entertaining. They climbed back into the coach. Back in the mountains, the man who had tried to rob the coach managed to get to his feet, which seemed for a moment to be caught in something. He rubbed his neck irritably and looked around for his horse, which he found standing behind some rocks a little way away. When he tried to lay a hand on the bridle, it passed straight through the leather and the horse's neck like smoke. The creature reared up and galloped madly away. It was not, the highwayman thought muzzily, going to be a good night. Well, he'd be damned if he'd lose a horse as well as some wages. Who the hell were these people? He couldn't quite remember what had happened in the carriage, but it hadn't been enjoyable. The highwayman was of that simple class of men who, having been hit by someone bigger than them, finds someone smaller than them for the purposes of retaliation. Someone else was going to suffer tonight, he vowed. He'd get another horse, at least and on cue he heard the sound of hoofbeats on the wind. He drew his sword and stepped out into the road. Stand and deliver! The approaching horse halted obediently a few feet away. This was not going to be such a bad night after all, he thought. It really was a magnificent creature, more of a war horse than an everyday hack. It was so pale that it shone in the light of the occasional star, and by the look of it there was silver on its harness. The rider was heavily wrapped up against the cold. "'Your money or your life,' said the highwayman. "'I'm sorry?' "'Your money,' said the highwayman, "'or your life. "'Which part of this don't you understand?' "'Oh, I see. "'Well, I have a small amount of money.' "'A couple of coins landed on the frosty road. "'The highwayman scrabbled for them, but could not pick them up, "'a fact that only added to his annoyance. "'It's your life, then!' The mounted figure shook his head. I think not. I really do. It pulled a long, curved stick out of a holster. 
The highwayman had assumed it was a lance, but now a curved blade sprang out and glittered blue along its edges. "'I must say that you have an amazing persistence of vitality,' said the horseman. It was not so much a voice, more an echo inside the head. "'If not, a presence of mind.' "'Who are you?' "'I'm Death,' said Death, "'and I really am not here to take your money. "'Which part of this don't you understand?' Something fluttered weakly at the window of the castle mews. There was no glass in the frame, just thin wooden slats to allow some passage of air. And there was a scrabbling, and then a faint pecking, and then silence. The hawks watched. Outside the window something went whoomph. Beams of brilliant light jerked across the far wall, and slowly the bars began to char. Nanny Og knew that while the actual party would be in the great hall... All the fun would be outside, in the courtyard, around the big fire. Inside, it'd be all quail's eggs, goose-liver jam and little sandwiches that would fall to the mouthful. Outside, it'd be roasted potatoes floating in vats of butter and a whole stag on a spit. Later on, there'd be a command performance by that man who put weasels down his trousers, a form of entertainment that Nanny ranked higher than grand opera. As a witch, of course, she'd be welcome anywhere, and it was always a good idea to remind the knobs of this in case they forgot. It was a hard choice, but she decided to stay outside and have a good dinner of venison, because, like many old ladies, Nanny Og was a bottomless pit for free food. Then she'd go inside and fill the gaps with the fiddly dishes. Besides, they probably had that expensive fizzy wine in there, and Nanny had quite a taste for it, provided it was served in a big enough mug but you needed a good depth of beer before you loaded up on the fancy stuff. She picked up a tankard, ambled to the front of the queue at the beer barrel, gently nudged aside the head of a man who'd decided to spend the evening lying under the tap, and drew herself a pint. As she turned back, she saw the splay-footed figure of Agnes approaching, still slightly uneasy with the idea of wearing the new pointy hat in public. "'Watch her, girl,' said Nanny. "'Try some of the venison. It's good stuff.' Agnes looked doubtfully at the roasting meat. Lancre people looked after the calories and let the vitamins go hang. "'Do you think I could get a salad?' she ventured. "'Oh, not,' said Nanny happily. "'Lot of people here,' said Agnes. "'Everyone got an invite,' said Nanny. "'Magrat was very gracious about that, I thought.' Agnes craned her head. "'Can't see Granny around anywhere, though. "'She'll be inside telling people what to do.' "'Haven't seen her around much at all lately,' said Agnes. "'She's got something on her mind, I think.' Nanny narrowed her eyes. "'You think so?' she said, adding to herself, "'You're getting good, miss.' "'It's just that ever since we heard about the birth,' Agnes waved a plump hand to indicate the general high cholesterol celebration around them, "'she's been so stretched, sort of, twanging.' Nanny Og thumbed some tobacco into her pipe and struck a match on her boot. "'You certainly notice things, don't you?' she said, puffing away. "'Notice, notice, notice. We'll have to call you Miss Notice.' "'I certainly notice you always fiddle around with your pipe when you're thinking thoughts you don't much like,' said Agnes. "'It's displacement activity.' Through a cloud of sweet-smelling smoke, Nanny reflected that Agnes read books. All the witches who'd lived in her cottage were bookish types. They thought you could see life through books, but you couldn't, the reason being that the words got in the way. 
She has been a bit quiet, that's true, she said. Best to let her get on with it. I thought perhaps she was sulking about the priest who'll be doing the naming, said Agnes. Oh, old brother Perdor is all right, said Nanny. Gabbles away in some ancient lingo, keeps it short, and then you just give him sixpence for his trouble, fill him up with brandy, and load him onto his donkey, and off he goes. What? Didn't you hear? said Agnes. He's laid up over in Scund, broke his wrist and both legs falling off the donkey. Nanny Og took her pipe out of her mouth. Why wasn't I told? she said. I don't know, Nanny. Mrs. Weaver told me yesterday. Oh, that woman? I passed her in the street this morning. She could have said. Nanny poked her pipe back into her mouth as though stabbing all uncommunicative gossips. How can you break both your legs falling off a donkey? He was going up that little path on the side of Scund Gorge. He fell sixty feet. Oh, well, that's a tall donkey right enough. So the king sent down to the Omnian mission in O'Hulan to send us up a priest, apparently, said Agnes. He did what? said Nanny. A small grey tent was inexpertly pitched in a field just outside the town. The rising wind made it flap and tore at the poster which had been pinned onto an easel outside. It read, Good news! Om welcomes you! In fact, no one had turned up to the small introductory service that Mightily Oats had organised that afternoon, but since he had announced one, he had gone ahead with it anyway, singing a few cheerful hymns to his own accompaniment on the small portable harmonium, and then preaching a very short sermon to the wind and the sky. Now the quite reverend Oates looked at himself in the mirror. He was a bit uneasy about the mirror, to be honest. Mirrors had led to one of the church's innumerable schisms, one side saying that since they encouraged vanity they were bad, and the other side saying that since they reflected the goodness of Om, they were holy. Oates had not quite formed his own opinion, being by nature someone who tries to see something in both sides of every question, but at least the mirror helped him to get his complicated clerical collar on straight. It was still very new. The very Reverend Meckle, who'd taken pastoral practice, had advised that the rules about starch were only really a guideline, but Oates hadn't wanted to put a foot wrong and his collar could have been used as a razor. He carefully lowered his holy turtle pendant into place, noting its gleam with some satisfaction, and picked up his finely printed graduation copy of the Book of Om. Some of his fellow students had spent hours carefully ruffling the pages to give them that certain straight and narrow credibility, but Oates had refrained from this as well. Besides, he knew most of it by heart. Feeling rather guilty because there had been some admonitions at the college against using holy writ merely for fortune-telling, he shut his eyes and let the book flop open at random. Then he opened his eyes quickly and read the first passage they encountered. It was somewhere in the middle of Brutha's second letter to the Omish, generally chiding them for not replying to the first letter to the Omish. Silence is an answer that begs three more questions. Seek and you will find, but first you should know what you seek. Oh well, he shut the book. What a place, what a dump. He'd had a short walk after the service and every path seemed to end in a cliff or a sheer drop. Never had he seen such a vertical country. Things had rustled at him in the bushes and he'd got his shoes muddy. As for the people he'd met, well... Simple, ignorant country folk, salt of the earth, obviously, but they just stared at him carefully from a distance, 
as if they were waiting for something to happen to him, and didn't care to be too close to him when it did. But still, he mused, it did say in Brutha's letter to the Simonites that if you wished the light to be seen, you had to take it into dark places. And this was certainly a dark place. He said a small prayer and stepped out into the muddy, windy darkness. Granny flew high above the roaring treetops under a half-moon. She distrusted a moon like that. A full moon could only wane, a new moon could only wax, but a half-moon, balancing so precariously between light and dark, well, it could do anything. Witches always lived on the edges of things. She felt the tingle in her hands. It was not just from the frosty air, there was an edge somewhere. Something was beginning. On the other side of the sky, the hub lights were burning around the mountains at the centre of the world, bright enough even to fight the pale light of the moon. Green and gold flames danced in the air over the central mountains. It was rare to see them at this time of year, and Granny wondered what that might signify. Slice was perched along the sides of a cleft in the mountains that couldn't be dignified by the name of Valley. In the moonlight she saw the pale, upturned face waiting in the shadows of the garden as she came into land. "'Evening, Mr Ivy,' she said, leaping off. "'Upstairs, is she?' "'In the barn,' said Ivy flatly. "'The cow kicked her hard.' "'Granny's expression stayed impassive. "'We shall see,' she said. "'What may be done?' "'In the barn, one look at Mrs Paternoster's face "'told her how little that might now be. "'The woman wasn't a witch, "'but she knew all the practical midwifery "'that can be picked up in an isolated village, "'be it from cows, goats, horses or humans. "'Oh, it's bad?' She whispered as Granny looked at the moaning figure on the straw. I reckon we'll lose both of them, or maybe just one. There was, if you were listening for it, just a suggestion of a question in that sentence. Granny focused her mind. It's a boy, she said. Mrs Paternoster didn't bother to wonder how Granny knew, but her expression indicated that a little more weight had been added to a burden. I'd better go and put it to John Ivy then, she said. She'd barely moved before Granny Weatherwax's hand locked on her arm. "'He's no part in this,' she said. "'But after all, he is the... "'He's no part in this!' Mrs Paternoster looked into the blue stare and knew two things. One was that Mr Ivy had no part in this, and the other was that anything that happened in this barn was never, ever going to be mentioned again. "'I think I can bring him to mind.' said Granny, letting go and rolling up her sleeves. Pleasant couple, as I recall. He's a good husband by all accounts. She poured warm water from its jug into the bowl that the midwife had set up on a manger. Mrs Paternoster nodded. Of course, it's difficult for a man working these steep lands alone, Granny went on, washing her hands. Mrs Paternoster nodded again mournfully. Well, I reckon you should take him into the cottage, Mrs Paternoster, and make him a cup of tea. Granny commanded. You can tell him I'm doing all I can. This time the midwife nodded gratefully. When she'd fled, Granny laid a hand on Mrs Ivy's damp forehead. Well now, Florence Ivy, she said, let us see what might be done. But first of all, no pain. As she moved her head, she caught sight of the moon through the unglazed window. Between the light and the dark, well, sometimes that's where you had to be. "'Indeed!' Granny didn't bother to turn round. "'I thought you'd be here,' she said as she knelt down in the straw. 
Where else? said Death. Do you know who you're here for? That is not my choice. On the very edge you will always find some uncertainty. Granny felt the words in her head for several seconds like little melting cubes of ice. On the very, very edge, then, there had to be judgment. "'There's too much damage here,' she said at last. "'Too much!' A few minutes later she felt the life stream past her. Death had the decency to leave without a word. When Mrs. Paternoster tremulously knocked on the door and pushed it open, Granny was in the cow's stall. The midwife saw her stand up, holding a piece of thorn. "'Been in the beast's leg all day,' she said. "'No wonder it was fretful.' Try and make sure he doesn't kill the cow, you understand? They'll need it. Mrs. Paternoster glanced down at the rolled-up blanket in the straw. Granny had tactfully placed it out of sight of Mrs. Ivy, who was sleeping now. I'll tell him, said Granny, brushing off her dress. As for her, well, she's strong and young and you know what to do. You keep an eye on her and me or Nanny Og will drop in when we can. If she's up to it, they may need a wet nurse up at the castle, and that may be good for everyone.' It was doubtful that anyone in Slice would defy Granny Weatherwax, but Granny saw the faintest grey shadow of disapproval in the midwife's expression. "'You still reckon I should have asked, Mr Ivy?' she said. "'That's what I would have done,' the woman mumbled. "'You don't like him? You think he's a bad man?' said Granny, adjusting her hatpins. "'No.' "'Then what's he ever done to me, that I should hurt him so?' Agnes had to run to keep up. Nanny Og, when roused, could move as though powered by pistons. "'But we get a lot of priests up here, Nanny.' "'Not like the Omnians,' snapped Nanny. "'We had them up here last year. "'Couple of them knocked at my door.' "'Well, that is what a door is for. "'And they shoved a leaflet under it saying, "'Repent,' Nanny Og went on. "'Repent! Me! Cheek! "'I can't start repenting at my time of life!' I'd never get any work done. Anyway, she added, I ain't sorry for most of it. You're getting a bit excited, I think. They set fire to people, said Nanny. I think I read somewhere that they used to, yes, said Agnes, panting with the effort of keeping up. But that was a long time ago, Nanny. The ones I saw in Ankh-Morpork Pork just handed out leaflets and preached in a big tent and sang rather dreary songs. Ah! The leopard does not change his shorts, my girl! They ran along a corridor and out from behind a screen into the hubbub of the great hall. "'Knee-deep in knobs,' said Nanny, craning. "'Ah! There's our Sean!' Lancre's standing army was lurking by a pillar, probably in the hope that no one would see him in his footman's powdered wig, which had been made for a much bigger footman. The kingdom didn't have much of an executive arm of government, and most of its actual hands belonged to Nanny Og's youngest son.' Despite the earnest efforts of King Verence, who was quite a forward-looking ruler in a nervous kind of way, the people of Lancre could not be persuaded to accept a democracy at any price, and the place had not regrettably attracted much in the way of government. A lot of the bits it couldn't avoid were done by Sean. He emptied the palace privies, delivered its sparse mail, guarded the walls, operated the royal mint, balanced the budget, helped out the gardener in his spare time, and on those occasions these days when it was felt necessary to man the borders, and Verence felt that yellow and black striped poles did give a country such a professional look, he stamped the passports, or at a pinch any other pieces of paper the visitor could produce, such as the back of an envelope, 
with a stamp he'd carved quite nicely out of half a potato. He took it all very seriously. At times like this, he buttled when Spriggins the butler was not on duty, or if an extra hand was needed, he footed as well. "'Evening hour, Sean,' said Nanny Og. "'I see you've got that dead lamb on your head again.' "'Oh, Mom,' said Sean, trying to adjust the wig. "'Where's this priest that's doing the naming?' said Nanny. "'What, Mum? To now, Mum. "'I stopped shouting out the names half an hour ago "'and got on to serving the bits of cheese on sticks. "'Oh, Mum, you shouldn't take that many, Mum.' It struck people as odd that, while Lankra people refused point-blank to have any truck with democracy, on the basis that governing was what the king ought to do, and they'd be sure to tell him if he went wrong, they didn't make very good servants. Oh, they could cook and dig and wash and footle and buttle, and did it very well, but could never quite get the hang of the serving mentality. King Verence was quite understanding about this, and put up with Sean ushering guests into the dining room with a cry of, Lovely grub, get it while it's hot! Nanny Og sucked the cocktail goodies off four sticks in one easy movement and looked speculatively at the throng. "'I'm going to have a word with young Verence,' said Nanny. "'He is the king, Nanny,' said Agnes. "'That's no reason for him to go around acting like he was royalty.' Uh, "'I think it is, actually. "'None of that cheek. "'You just go and find this Omnion and keep an eye on him.' "'What should I look for?' said Agnes sourly. "'A column of smoke?' They all wear black, said Nanny firmly. Ah, typical. Well, so do we. Right, but ours is... Ours is... Nanny thumped her chest, causing considerable ripples. Ours is the right black, right? Now, off you go and look inconspicuous, added Nanny, a lady wearing a two-foot-tall pointed black hat. She stared around at the crowd again and nudged her son. "'Sean, you did deliver an invite to Esme Weatherwax, didn't you?' He looked horrified. "'Of course, Mum. Shove it under her door. Now, Mum, you know she gave me an ear-bashing when the snails got at that postcard last year. I wedged it in the hinges good and tight.' "'There's a good boy,' said Nanny. Lankra people didn't bother much with letterboxes. Mail was infrequent, but biting gales were not.' Why have a slot in the door to let in unsolicited winds? So letters were left under large stones, wedged firmly in flower pots, or slipped under the door. There were never very many. Apart from the ones containing small postal orders attached to letters which generally said pretty much the same thing, Dear Mum and Dad, I am doing pretty well in Ankh-Morpork, and this week I earned a whole seven dollars. Lankra operated on the feudal system, which was to say everyone feuded all the time and handed on the fight to their descendants. The chips on some shoulders had been passed down for generations. Some had antique value. A bloody good grudge, Lankra reckoned, was like a fine old wine. You looked after it carefully and left it to your children. You never wrote to anyone. If you had anything to say, you said it to their face. It kept everything nice and hot. Agnes edged into the crowd, feeling stupid. She often did. Now she knew why Magret Garlic had always worn those soppy, floppy dresses and never wore the pointy hat. Wear the pointy hat and dress in black, and on Agnes there was plenty of black to go round, and everyone saw you in a certain way. You were a witch. It had its good points. Among the bad ones was the fact that people turned to you when they were in trouble and never thought for a moment that you couldn't cope. 
but she got a bit of respect even from people who could remember her before she'd been allowed to wear the hat. They tended to make way for her, although people tended to make way in any case for Agnes when she was in full steam. Or evening, miss. She turned and saw Hodgesarg in full official regalia. It was important not to smile at times like this, so Agnes kept a straight face and tried to ignore Perdita's hysterical laughter at the back of her mind. She'd seen Hodgesarg occasionally around the edges of the woods or up on the moors. Usually the royal falconer was vainly fighting off his hawks, who attacked him for a pastime, and in the case of King Henry kept picking him up and dropping him again in the belief that he was a giant tortoise. It wasn't that he was a bad falconer. A few other people in Lancre kept hawks and reckoned he was one of the best trainers in the mountains, possibly because he was so single-minded about it. It was just that he had trained every feathery little killing machine so well that it became unable to resist seeing what he tasted like. He didn't deserve it, nor did he deserve his ceremonial costume. Usually, when not in the company of King Henry, he just wore working leathers and about three sticking plasters. But what he was wearing now had been designed hundreds of years before by someone with a lyrical view of the countryside who had never had to run through a bramble bush with a gerfalcon hanging on their ear. It had a lot of red and gold in it, and would have looked much better on someone two feet taller who had the legs for red stockings. The hat was best not talked about, but if you had to, you'd talk about it in terms of something big, red and floppy, with a feather in it. Miss Nitt, said Hodgesarg. Sorry, I was looking at your hat. It's good, isn't it? said Hodgesarg amiably. This is William. She's a buzzard, but she thinks she's a chicken. She can't fly. I'm having a teacher how to hunt. Agnes was craning her neck for any signs of overtly religious activity, but the incongruity of the slightly bedraggled creature on Hodgesarg's wrist brought her gaze back down again. How? she said. She walks into the burrows and kicks the rabbits to death, and I've almost cured her of crowing, haven't I, William? William? said Agnes. Oh, yes. To a falconer she remembered all hawks were she. Have you seen any omnians here? she whispered, leaning down towards him. What kind of bird are they, miss? said the falconer uneasily. He always seemed to have a preoccupied air when not discussing hawks like a man with a big dictionary who couldn't find the index. Oh, er, uh, don't worry about it then. She stared at William again and said, How? I mean, how does a bird like that think he's, uh, she's uh, a chicken? Can happen all too easy, miss, said Hodgesarg. Thomas Peerless over in Badass pinched an egg and put it under a broody hen, miss. He didn't take the chicken away in time. So William thought if her mum was a chicken, then so was she. Well, that's, and that's what happens, miss. When I raise them from eggs, I don't do that. I've got a special glove, miss. That's absolutely fascinating, but I'd better go, said Agnes quickly. Yes, miss. She'd spotted the quarry walking across the hall. There was something unmistakable about him. It was as if he was a witch. It wasn't that his black robe ended at the knees and became a pair of legs encased in grey socks and sandals, or that his hat had a tiny crown but a brim big enough to set out your dinner on. It was because wherever he walked, he was in a little empty space that seemed to move around him just like you got around witches. No one wanted to get too close to witches. She couldn't see his face. He was making a beeline for the buffet table. 
"'Excuse me, Miss Nitt.' Sean had appeared at her side. He stood very stiffly, because if he made any sudden turns, the oversized wig tended to spin on his head. "'Yes, Sean?' "'The Queen wants a word, Miss,' said Sean. "'With me?' said Agnes. "'Yes, Miss. She's up in the ghastly green drawing-room, Miss.' Sean swivelled slowly. His wig stayed facing the same way. Agnes hesitated. It was a royal command, she supposed, even if it was only from Magrat Garlic, as was, and as such it superseded anything Nanny had asked her to do. Anyway, she had spotted the priest, and it was not as though he was going to set fire to everyone over the canapes. She'd better go. A little hatch shot open behind the doleful Igor. Why have we stopped this time? Trolls in the way, master. A what? Igor rolled his eyes. A troll's in the way, he said. The hatch shut. There was a whispered conversation inside the coach. The hatch opened. You mean a troll? Yes, master. Run it down. The troll advanced, holding a flickering torch above its head. At some point recently someone had said, this troll needs a uniform, and had found that the only thing in the armoury that would fit was the helmet, and then only if he attached it to his head with string. The old count wouldn't have told me to run it down, Igor muttered, not quite under his breath, but then he was a gentleman. What was that? a female voice snapped. The troll reached the coach and banged its knuckles on its helmet respectfully. Evening! It said, This is a bit embarrassing. You know a pole? Pole? said Igor suspiciously. It are a long wooden thing. Yes, well, what about it? I'd like you to imagine, right, that there's a black and yellow striped one across this road, right, only because we've only got the one and it's being used up on the Copperhead Road tonight. The hatch slid open. Get a move on, man, and run it down. I could go and get it if you like, said the troll, shifting nervously from one huge foot to the other. Only it wouldn't be here till tomorrow, right? Or you could pretend it's here right now, and then I could pretend to lift it up, and that'd be okay, right? Do it then, said Igor. He ignored the grumbling behind him. The old Count had always been polite to trolls, even though you couldn't bite them, and that was real class in a vampire. "'Only first I gotta stamp something,' said the troll. It held up half a potato and a paint-soaked rag. "'Why? Sure's you've been past me?' said the troll. "'Yes, but we will have been past you,' Igor pointed out. "'I mean, everyone will know we've been past you because we are.' But it'll show you've done it officially, said the troll. What'll happen if we just drive on, said Igor. Er, uh, then I won't lift the pole, said the troll. Locked in a metaphysical conundrum, they both looked at the patch of road where the virtual pole barred the way. Normally, Igor wouldn't have wasted any time, but the family had been getting on his nerves, and he reacted in the traditional way of the put-upon servant by suddenly becoming very stupid. He leaned down and addressed the coach's occupants through the hatch. "'It's a border check, master,' he said. "'We've got to have something stamped.' 
There was more whispering inside the coach, and then a large white rectangle, edged in gold, was thrust ungraciously through the hatch. Igor passed it down. Seems a shame, said the troll, stamping it inexpertly and handing it back. What's this? Igor demanded. Pardon? This, this stupid mark. Well, the potato wasn't big enough for the official seal, and I don't know what a seal looked like in any case, but I reckon that's a good carving of a duck I done there, said the troll cheerfully. Now, are you ready? Cos I'm lifting the pole. Here it goes now. Look at it, pointing up in the air like that. This means you can go. The coach rolled on a little way and stopped just before the bridge. The troll, aware that he'd done his duty, wandered towards it and heard what he considered to be a perplexing conversation, although to Big Jim Beef most conversations involving polysyllabic words were shrouded in mystery. Now, I want you all to pay attention. Father, we have done this before. The point can't be hammered home far enough. That is the Lancre River down there, running water, and we will cross it. It is as well to consider that your ancestors, although quite capable of undertaking journeys of hundreds of miles, nevertheless firmly believed that they couldn't cross a stream. Do I need to point out the contradiction? No, father. Good. Cultural conditioning would be the death of us if we are not careful. Drive on, Igor. The troll watched them go. Coldness seemed to follow them across the bridge. Granny Wellowax was airborne again, glad of the clean, crisp air. She was well above the trees, and to the benefit of all concerned, no one could see her face. Isolated homesteads passed below, a few with lighted windows, but most of them dark, because people would long ago have headed for the palace. There was a story under every roof, she knew. She knew all about stories, but those down there were the stories that were never to be told, the little secret stories enacted in little rooms. They were about those times when medicines didn't help and headology was at a loss because a mind was a rage of pain in a body that had become its own enemy, when people were simply in a prison made of flesh, and at times like this she could let them go. There was no need for desperate stuff with a pillow or deliberate mistakes with the medicine. You didn't push them out of the world, you just stopped the world pulling them back. You just reached in and showed them the way. There was never anything said. Sometimes you saw in the face of the relatives the request they'd never, ever put words around. Or maybe they'd say, Is there something you can do for him? And this was perhaps the code. If you dared ask, they'd be shocked that you might have thought they meant anything other than perhaps a comfier pillow. And any midwife out in isolated cottages on bloody nights would know all the other little secrets, never to be told. She'd been a witch here all her life and one of the things a witch did was stand right on the edge where the decisions had to be made. You made them so that others didn't have to, so that others could even pretend to themselves that there were no decisions to be made, no little secrets that things just happened. You never said what you knew, and you didn't ask for anything in return. The castle was brightly lit, she saw. She could even make out figures around the bonfire. Something else caught her eye, because she was going to look everywhere but at the castle now, and it jolted her out of her mood. Mist was pouring over the mountains and sliding down the far valleys under the moonlight. One strand was flowing towards the castle and pouring very slowly into the Lancre Gorge. Of course you got mists in the spring when the weather was changing, but this mist was coming from Uberwald. 
The door to Magrat's room was opened by Millie Chillum, the maid, who curtsied to Agnes, or at least to her hat, and then left her alone with the Queen, who was at her dressing table. Agnes wasn't sure of the protocol, but tried a sort of republican curtsy. This caused considerable movement in outlying regions. Queen Magrat of Lancre blew her nose and stuffed the hanky up the sleeve of her dressing gown. "'Oh, hello, Agnes,' she said. "'Take a seat, do. "'You don't have to bob up and down like that. "'Millie does it all the time and I get seasick. "'Anyway, strictly speaking, witches bow.' "'Er,' uh, Agnes began. "'She glanced at the crib in the corner. "'It had more loops and lace than any piece of furniture should. "'She's asleep,' said Magrat. "'Oh, the crib. "'Verence ordered it all the way from Ankh Morpork. "'I said the old one they'd always used was fine, "'but he's very, you know, modern.' "'Please, sit down.' "'You wanted me, Your Majesty,' Agnes began, still uncertain. "'It was turning out to be a very complicated evening, "'and she wasn't sure even now how she felt about Magrat. "'The woman had left echoes of herself in the cottage. "'An old bangle lost under the bed. "'Rather soppy notes in some of the ancient notebooks. "'Vases full of desiccated flowers. "'You can build up a very strange view of someone "'via the things they leave behind the dresser.' "'I just wanted a little talk,' said Magrat. "'It's a bit... "'Look, I'm really very happy, but, well... "'Millie's nice, but she agrees with me all the time, "'and Nanny and Granny still treat me as if I wasn't, well, you know, "'queen and everything. "'Not that I want to be treated as queen all the time, "'but, well, you know, I want them to know I'm queen, "'but not treat me as one, if you see what I mean.' "'I think so,' said Agnes carefully.' Magrat waved her hands in an effort to describe the indescribable, used handkerchiefs cascaded out of her sleeves. I mean, I get dizzy with people bobbing up and down all the time, so when they see me I like them to think, oh, there's Magrat, she's queen now, but I shall treat her in a perfectly normal way. But perhaps just a little more politely, because she is queen after all, Agnes suggested. Well, yes, exactly. Actually, Nanny's not too bad. At least she treats everyone the same all the time. But when Granny looks at me, you can see her thinking, Oh, there's Magrat. Make the tea, Magrat. One day I swear I'll make a very cutting remark. It's as if they think I'm doing this as a hobby. I do know what you mean. It's as if they think I'm going to get it out of my system and go back to witching again. They wouldn't say that, of course, but that's what they think. They really don't believe there's any other sort of life. That's true. How's the old cottage? There's a lot of mice, said Agnes. Oh, no, I used to feed them. Don't tell Granny. She is here, isn't she? Haven't seen her yet, said Agnes. Ah, uh, she'll be waiting for a dramatic moment, said Magrat. And you know what? I've never caught her actually waiting for a dramatic moment, not in all the, well, things we've been involved in. I mean... If it was you or me, we'd be hanging around in the hall or something, but she just walks in and it's the right time. She says you make your own right time, said Agnes. Yes, said Magrat. Yes, said Agnes. And you say she's not here yet? It was the first card we did. Magrat leaned closer. Verence got them to put extra gold leaf on it. I'm amazed it doesn't go clang when she puts it down. How are you at making the tea? They always complain, said Agnes. Oh, they do, don't they? Three lumps of sugar for Nanny Og, right? It's not as if they even give me tea money, said Agnes. She sniffed. There was a slight mustiness to the air. It's not worth baking biscuits, I can tell you that, said Magrat. 
I used to spend hours doing fancy ones with crescent moons and so on. You might just as well get them from the shop. She sniffed too. That's not the baby, she said. I'm sure Sean Ogg's been so busy arranging things he hasn't had time to clean up the privy pit in the last two weeks. The smell comes right up the garderobe in the gong tower when the wind gusts. I've tried hanging up fragrant herbs, but they sort of dissolve. She looked uncertain, as if a worse prospect than lax castle sanitation had crossed her mind. Er, uh, she must have got the invitation, mustn't she? Sean says he delivered it, said Agnes, and she probably said, and her voice changed, becoming clipped and harsh, I can't be having with that at my time of life. I've never been one to put myself forward. No one could ever say I'm one to put myself forward. Magrat's mouth was an O of amazement. That's so like her, it's frightening, she said. It's one of the few things I'm good at, said Agnes in her normal voice. Big hair, a wonderful personality, and an ear for sounds. And two minds, Perdita added. She'll come anyway, Agnes went on, ignoring the inner voice. But it's gone half eleven. Good grief, I'd better get dressed. Can you give me a hand? She hurried into the dressing room with Agnes tagging along behind. I even wrote a bit underneath asking her to be a good mother, she said, sitting down in front of the mirror and scrabbling among the debris of makeup. She's always secretly wanted to be one. Phew, that's something to wish on a child, said Agnes without thinking. Magrat's hand stopped halfway to her face in a little cloud of powder, and Agnes saw her horrified look in the mirror. Then the jaw tightened, and for a moment the Queen had just the same expression that Granny sometimes employed. Well, if it was a choice of wishing a child health, wealth and happiness, or Granny Weatherwax being on her side, I know which I'd choose, said Magrat. You must have seen her in action. Once or twice, yes, Agnes conceded. She'll never be beaten, said Magrat. You wait till you see her when she's in a tight corner. She's got that way of putting part of herself somewhere safe. It's as if, as if she gives herself to someone else to keep hidden for a while. It's all part of that. "'Borrowing stuff she does.' "'Agnes nodded. "'Nanny had warned her about it, "'but even so it was unnerving to turn up at Granny's cottage "'and find her stretched out on the floor, "'as stiff as a stick and holding in fingers that were almost blue, "'a card with the words, "'I ain't dead.' "'When there was nothing much else to occupy her time, "'Granny Weatherwax sent her mind borrowing, "'letting it piggyback inside the heads of other creatures.' She was widely accepted as the most skilled exponent of the art that the Ramtops had seen for centuries, being practically able to get inside the minds of things that didn't even have minds. The practice meant, among other things, that Lankra people were less inclined towards the casual cruelty to animals that is a general feature of the rural idyll, on the basis that the rat you throw a brick at today might turn out to be the witch you need some toothache medicine from tomorrow. It also meant that people calling on her unexpectedly would find her stretched out apparently cold and lifeless, heart and pulse barely beating. The sign had saved a lot of embarrassment. It just meant that she was out in the world somewhere, seeing life through the eyes of a badger or a pigeon, riding as an unheeded passenger in its mind. And you know what, Magrat went on, it's just like those magicians in her wonderland who keep their heart hidden in a jar somewhere for safety so they can't be killed. There's something about it in a book at the cottage. Wouldn't have to be a big jar, said Agnes. That wasn't fair, said Magrat. She paused. Well, not fair for most of the time. Often, anyway. Sometimes, at least. Can you help me with this bloody rough? 